Thank you all for inviting me here. It's a pleasure to be here. And I also really appreciate all the dress up that I'm looking at in the audience because if you've heard the old adage about like, imagine your audience in their underwear, well, it's way cooler <laughs> to see like minions and uh, Willy Wonka and all of that. So thank you very much for that. I gotta see. Here we go. Okay, so um, in terms of disclosure, the comfortability program, which I'm going to be talking about, can, can you all hear me? Is this picking me up? Yeah? Okay. Um, which I'm going to be talking about is um, licensed to Boston Children's, where I work, uh, but other than that, no other conflicts. I want to start off um, by telling you um, two stories, two events that <coughs> happened to me when I first started working with our pain team um, that really sort of informed the work that I went on to do. So I, I had been on our CL service doing all inpatient consultation work. And I got a call from one of my colleagues on our pain team that said, you know, our wait list has gotten quite long, and could we buy out one day of your time to come to the pain service to do some outpatient work for us? And I thought that sounded like a really nice balance to the busy on-call schedule of the CL service, so um, I agreed to do that. And when I got there, they said, okay, you're going to have five outpatient slots. Just take a look at our wait list. Start at the top, pick the you know, first five people and give them a call. And so um, what I expected to see on the wait list was something like this, a group of kids that were waiting for service. <clears throat> but what I found was this. We had, um, not exaggerating, about 85 kids on our wait list, and some of whom had been on there for over a year. And I thought, well, for sure they just hadn't updated this list, and clearly these kids can't still be waiting for service. Um, and I was pretty alarmed to find that when I started at the top of the list, these kids were still, yes, waiting for psychological intervention. And so I filled up my five slots, and then there were still 80 kids waiting, and I knew it would be two to three months till I could get to them. Um, and so I thought, you know, we're seeing in our pain service, we were seeing at the time about eight new patients a week, and so this, this list fills up quite quickly. So that was the first thing. I thought, my gosh, we need way many more psychologists doing this work. And the second thing, I don't actually know if this is just a psychology thing or not, but I like to try to figure out who my patients are when I'm seeing them for the first time before I step out into the waiting room. And in our clinic, we share our waiting room with uh, gynecology and adolescent medicine. So it's sort of one big wait area. It can be quite busy. Um, so I like to look and say, okay, I'm looking for a 14-year-old boy with headache and full body pain, post-viral syndrome that he's had for six months. So then I like to look and scan the wait room and see if I can pick out my patient. And I wish I'd had the foresight at the time to take a picture of what I saw, um, but I didn't. And so just to give you some visual context, it looked something like this. Um, there was a child slumped in the corner of the weight room, blanket fully covering his head and his whole body. Um, and I thought, I bet, I bet, I bet that's my patient. Um, and it was. And then I looked slightly to the left and I saw his parents that looked something like this. They had no idea what was happening. They weren't actually even sure why they were there to see me. They weren't really sure what it was that I could do that could help in this particular situation. Then I went and picked up my next patient who looked similarly shut down, despondent in the weight room, but the parent looked like this, completely like, 
you know, like a deer in headlights, didn't know what to do. And then the next child also shut down and the parent looked like that and then like that and then like that. And so what became very clear to me is that we weren't doing a good job of educating parents. They were worried and they were frightened and they were confused um, and they didn't understand, most of them, what they were doing there and how this could be integral to their child's care. So pretty early on in my work with our pain team, I said, we've got three problems that we need to work on solving. The first one, we are waiting too long to treat these kids. By the time they were getting into service, many of them had had pain for a year or more, and their disability had been compounded by the fact that they weren't in school and the parents didn't know how to help manage these symptoms. The second problem, the parents are not getting enough support and education. The, um, in our pain service, we really actually pride ourselves on the lengthy evaluations that we do where we do long feedbacks with families and we try to educate them. And in our multidisciplinary team, we sit with physician and psychology and physical therapy and we combine together and we explain this all and it wasn't enough. It, the parents that we were seeing were still quite confused. And the, and the other key problem is that we were doing a terrible job of disseminating this information. Yeah, sorry. Okay, better? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, that parents had a lot of misinformation. They were going online to look for resources. They were finding things that were really designed for adult chronic pain, or they were reading about these catastrophic stories that were happening to kids. And so we, I mean, for those that are in the field of chronic pain, we know that this field continues to evolve. There is much more to be done, but there's also a lot of good information that we know, and we just need to be better about getting it out there. So here's what I'm gonna talk about today. So I wanna sort of give an overview a little bit just to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of prevalence, impact, and burden of the chronic pain problem. And then I wanna talk about a few conceptual shifts that I see in the field having just been in the field 10 years. Um, I think that there are some really important changes that open the door for how we um, conceptualize this and can move forward in getting families the support they need. I am gonna talk about the Comfortability Program, which is now running here at Connecticut Children's. Um, a little bit about the development, how, how it was we came to develop this program, the implementation, some research outcomes, um, and then a little bit about our dissemination. Um, and my goals for today. Um, I wanna make a case for early treatment or even primary prevention for chronic pain. I think if we can get in sooner, we can change the trajectories for many of these kids, um, but it has to be done in a planful kind of way. Um, I think we need to really rethink sort of the idea of chronic pain and recognize that from a psychological standpoint, kids with chronic pain are much more similar than they are different. They are all struggling with school. Almost all of them have sleep problems. They are irritable because they hurt. They're anxious because they don't know what's going on. And so at least at the beginning of treatment, um, our approach can be quite broad because we're able to treat many kids with various kinds of pain problems. Um, and then I'm gonna make a big push for treating parents because especially in chronic pain, um, treating parents is, is key to helping kids get back on track. Okay, so just a little bit about sort of the, the scope of the problem here. Um, the prevalence, depending on where you look in the literature, somewhere between 11 and 38%. 
Um, and we sort of agreed on stat that many of my colleagues use is this 20%. 20% of kids will have an episode of chronic pain in their pediatric lifespan. Um, and that means about 1.7 uh, diagnosed annually in the US. Um, we, we have a lot of problems in the US that I think other countries don't have, uh, but chronic pain is not one of them. This, this same statistic holds uh, in Australia. Their numbers look very similar in Europe. Um, so it's pretty prevalent uh, throughout, throughout the world right now. And it costs about 19 and a half billion dollars a year in the US alone. And that makes it as costly as the treatment of asthma and ADHD, which are the number one, number two pediatric conditions. Um, it's under-recognized, I think, because people tend to look at GI pain in the GI population and headache pain in neurology, um, pain amplification in rheumatology. But when you, when you lump them together, when we look at the scope of this problem, uh, it's quite costly. Um, and then, of course, the burden is significant, right? So you've got physical and emotional components of pain. And I think often we key into the physical components and pay less attention to the emotional components. But in pain treatment, the emotional components are equally as important to pay attention to. So this is some data from our, from our clinic. And you can see that um, almost 70% of our patients have more than one kind of pain problem. And we know that kids are at risk. If you have one persistent pain problem, you're at risk for developing another pain problem. So by the time they're getting to our pain clinic, they already often have more than one pain problem. Over half our sample has difficulty walking. Um, three quarters of our sample is not functioning well in school, and whether that means they're not attending or they're falling behind in their work, um, they're, they're not doing well. Um, and a large portion of our sample also has sleep dysfunction. On the emotional end of things, right, there's a lot of fear about physical activity. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. Over half of our sample is fearful of moving, just that alone. And that's very pain specific. That's not a psychological comorbidity per se. It's a natural sort of biologic response to pain. But the fear of pain can, can really interfere with the progress kids make in their rehabilitation. About half our samples worried about pain. Um, kids catastrophize, kids and parents both catastrophize. Um, and most, almost 80% of our sample feel, feels like the pain has been problematic and is interfering in multiple areas of their life. And so not only do they have this when they present to, to these multidisciplinary pain clinics, but I think we have to be very mindful of what we can do to treat this in pediatrics because the trajectories into adulthood are, are quite um, concerning. Um, depending on where you look in the literature, 35 to 73% of pediatric chronic pain problems that are not fully treated persist into adulthood. And of course, this isn't just talking about the, um, the, the, the single pain problem maybe that a child presents with, but we're talking about the idea of persistent pain plus the idea of central sensitization or pain sensitivity. We know that the nervous system changes in response to persistent pain and increases the risk for sort of long-term sensitivity to pain well into adulthood. Um, so we have to be really mindful of that and think about how we're gonna treat this much earlier on. And then there's the problem, of course, of opioid. Um, and I'm not gonna go through too many of the statistics, but I wanna put a few of these up here. Um, 
there are, you know, in, in our pain clinic, they, they don't use opioids unless it's a palliative situ situation, cancer-related pain, um, acute sickle cell crisis, but they, they do not prescribe them for chronic pain. And, and most people that are in this field fully understand that and buy into it. But that's not what's happening in a lot of parts of our country too. Um, the last bullet here in 2014, this was really concerning, a study of 8,000 adolescents that presented to an emergency room for headache. 50% of them received an opioid and 30% of that group of 50% got a refill without ever seeing a doctor and follow up. So when we understand that the risk of just being prescribed these medications connects to misuse and, and abuse later in life. We have to be sort of really mindful that these are out there um, and, and, it's, and it's risky. And, and parents and kids often are prescribed them as a first-line treatment. So here's where I think we are that, that really helps to, um, sorry, I just saw Oompa Loompa walk in. This is amazing. <laughs> Um, so we have a culture shift here in pediatric pain that is just um, important to think about. Um, first of all, I do think that there is now an investment in early intervention and prevention. And, and we can look at this sort of even the scope of sort of infant pain in terms of how we're treating that now because we know that the nervous system changes when infants don't have pain that's fully treated. Um, and the idea that there are measures that can be taken to prevent this um, has really informed a lot of the work in neonatal care and even early childhood care. Um, and so we're talking about sort of the risk of the untreated pain plus this burden of entrenched difficulties. And I'll talk a little bit about that um, later on as well, but sort of the idea that the functional problems that go hand in hand with persistent pain um, are incredibly burdensome for kids and parents. Um, and I do think we are really rethinking the idea of, of medication for chronic pain. The um, CDC guidelines that came out in 2016 for the first time said that non-pharmacologic therapies are first-line treatments and the preferred first-line treatment. And while I think it will really take some time to see this fold into our practice, I do think the emphasis is changing uh, and people's eyes are open to the idea that we need to uh, use more multidisciplinary approaches. Um, and the last thing that I've, that I've seen um, are sort of as pediatric pain, chronic pain clinics have opened across the country um, in the last 10 years and as our own program has grown considerably, um, there's really a shift to sort of identifying a primary pain disorder. So not really looking at this in siloed uh, disciplines, but really sort of thinking about it. I call it sort of a general specialty, which is really what it is. Any kid that's got persistent pain, we need to sort of think about how we're going to get service to them and what we can do sort of that's in the center of the Venn diagram that is the same for all kids. Because for sure, different presentations in the, in the big picture and when you get deeper into the problems often require some individualized care. But there is sort of, there are some core constructs and approaches that we can be delivering to kids and families that can really help. Um, in, in, in terms of sort of where you are in your understanding of what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, um, this is sort of the most research proven psychological intervention for persistent pain 
for many, actually, for many pediatric problems, anxiety, depression, lots of other problems as well, but for sure we see this with pain. And the evidence is, is pretty significant. Um, many of the studies that are done document reduced pain, improved daily function, which is, is usually happens even before the pain gets better, um, reduced anxiety and depression, which are frequent comorbidities, and these in increased feelings of self-efficacy. And, and I'll talk about that a little bit later because I think this construct, the idea that pain is a problem that can be managed, um, just getting kids and parents to that point, the, the idea, the belief that this is something that, that there's something they can do about it um, is really important. Um, so we have, we have strong evidence that, um, that, that cognitive behavioral therapy is very helpful and much of that research looks at questionnaire data, pre-post data, how's your anxiety and depression, rate it now, rate it later, see how that goes. The, uh, what's exciting too are some new studies that are coming out that are really looking at changes in the brain that occur when you have intense psychological therapy and physical therapy as well. And this is research from one of my colleagues, uh, Laura Simons, which is looking at fMRI of the brain pre and post treatment uh, at our intensive rehabilitation program. So this is a day treatment program. Kids come for three to six weeks and the recipe is really uh, daily cognitive behavioral therapy and family therapy and physical therapy. None of these kids were on medications. And what, oops, sorry, what she found, um, just sort of as a take home message here, is that at the level of sort of the brain functionality, what we're able to do is unlink the connection between the amygdala and the motor cortex. So when kids come into the program and you look at this, when they move, from their motor cortex, it's linked to their amygdala, which is our fear response, um, and there's a lot of connectivity there. And what we're trying to do is unlink that so kids can move without fear, uh, which is really critical to getting kids back on track. And, and we can see that, uh, which, is, which is pretty cool. So we see it in the brain as well. So we, we have good research, we are seeing these changes in the brain, um, but of course access to services is a challenge. This is why we have so many kids on our wait list. We wanted to know sort of what was getting in the way. Um, not only were our wait lists long and we knew that kids couldn't access service uh, in their local communities, they were struggling with that, um, but we wanted to really understand who's following up with recommendations. And so we did this study um, that I'm sure will not, the outcomes of which will not surprise you, but we looked at, so everyone in our multidisciplinary team makes recommendations, the physician, the physical therapist, and the psychologist. And we just wanted to know, after you come to us and see us at our pain service, who follows up with the recommendations? Okay, about 85% followed up with physician recommendations, about 70% followed up with the physical therapy recommendations, and then about 40% followed up with the psychology recommendations. And so we wanted to know what's getting in the way, what is, what is interfering here? Um, number one, there aren't enough providers. This is why we have a long wait list. Um, there are geographic limitations. So the idea, even if we did have opportunity to see them in our clinic, the idea that they could come from a wide catchment area and receive service on a weekly basis wasn't possible for many of our patients. Um, scheduling conflicts, of course, because now once they've come to our pain service, 
we send them off sort of on a journey of lots of other appointments and rehabilitative services. And so getting psychology as part of that mix can be difficult. Um, but of course, then there were the financial or insurance constraints that need to, we needed to be mindful of. And the bottom two um, we thought were particularly interesting. So not really understanding, even though we gave our best explanations, even though we use our analogies and our metaphors, and we think that families are leaving uh, with a pretty solid understanding of what it is we can offer from the psychology standpoint and why that matters in pain management. Uh, they weren't really getting it at a deeper level. They still were confused and worse, they often felt stigmatized by it. They felt like still, despite the fact that we explained to them that pain is in the brain and this doesn't imply that it's a psychological problem, they were feeling that a referral to a psychologist was sort of a, um, a, a, a there's a stigma associated with that and that you weren't being serious about the physicality of their problem. Um, and so then I, I became very interested in sort of the brief intervention. And this is something uh, from my work working with chronic illness populations. What can be done if you can't treat everybody for four months of individual psychotherapy? What are the options? The, um, within the pediatric literature, so brief is characterized by six hours or less of intervention time. And there's actually a lot of good research uh, out there about it in terms of what can be tapped. What can you do with that amount of research? Well, self-efficacy, pain severity and frequency, school attendance, self-management of symptoms, family functioning, functional ability, and psychosocial function. And this is not from our research. This is not from our lab. This is really sort of looking at what other outcomes are out there. So even with brief interventions, and in some instances, some of the brief interventions were found to be as effective as longer-term treatments. And so I think that really opens the door for uh, some nice opportunities for intervention. Um, and then, of course, um, within pediatrics, parents matter. Uh, there's a Cochrane review that came out about five years ago, um, and hopefully this won't surprise anybody, um, but looking across all treatment types, interventions that target the parents do better than interventions that don't include parents. Uh, and that makes good sense. The, um, I don't know if you can read this, but it says discipline and good behavior are keys to family harmony. So my husband and I do everything our children tell us to do. And this is really quite true. Parents are reactive to their child's pain and if they don't have clear opportunities to understand this uh, and, and, and a way to sort of know how to parent it, uh, they are just taking cues for their child. And if you're not, if the child's not changing for very various reasons, you're not gonna get a lot of traction there. Um, and then of course, when thinking about sort of addressing this problem, we have to remember that the healthcare system really demands now this feasibility priority. There are lots of lovely, lovely interventions that have been done, um, but they're not sustainable because they don't work in our, the current culture of our healthcare system. So you have to think about what is the burden on families? We already know that families feel overscheduled and they have conflicts around that, so we have to be mindful of that. Um, what's the time and energy investment from providers if you're gonna roll out a new intervention? Because we are all very busy, and so you have to sort of think about that as well. Um, the financial burden on the healthcare system, um, is it, can you replicate it? Is it an intervention that is easy to sort of share and, and move forward with? Um, is it sustainable? So these were sort of the questions that we wanted to ask when we were thinking about how do we start to address these key problems that we're seeing. 
And here's, here's what we did. Create an evidence-based, first-line psychological intervention that addresses time, cost, and resource barriers. That was sort of the ask. That's what we set out to do. Um, it had to be non-stigmatizing. The program I'm gonna talk about, the comfort ability, has nothing to do, there's no psychology in the title of it, and we talk about sort of gaining comfort as a skill or an ability. Um, and it has everything to do with pain and nothing to do with um, psychological issues. Um, we have to teach parents and we have to sort of engage them around the idea that psychological interventions now are part of the first line treatment. They are primary to how we treat chronic pain. Um, and, and, and what I call pain-related stress, which is sort of all of the difficulty that comes from missing school and not sleeping and being off your soccer team and not seeing your friends enough, all of that stress compounds the pain. And so we can address that too with these psychological interventions. Um, and then I think you really have to make interventions experiential and meaningful because we need to deeply engage families. When they come in for their clinic appointments, we, we throw a lot out that a lot out them out there at them and in the other clinics that I visited that use similar models their their point of evaluation is a big day and it's a great opportunity to start this educational process but it's not getting in deep enough they're not sort of able to follow through uh, and many of our patients go on to seek additional um, consultation after that so this is the program um, that, that um, I developed uh, and am continuing to work on. And our mission is quite simple, teaching kids and parents the evidence-based skills needed to manage chronic or recurrent pain. Um, and that's really what we're setting out to do. The program, just by way of sort of the structure, uh, it's a one-day, day-long intervention. Um, we treat various pain problems. Um, really, we don't screen out any pain problem uh, that comes in. The only requirement is that the kids have had persistent pain and they're looking for skills and strategies for learning how to manage this. Um, at our institution, we get referrals from all over the hospital now for this program, direct referrals from GI, rheumatology, neurology, and sports medicine, orthopedics. Um, and some sites don't. I don't think here it works quite that way at this point, but, but there is an opportunity to sort of have kids directly referred into the program. And we lumped together a large age range, 10 to 17, and when we started piloting this program, we were kind of like, let's just bring everybody together, let's see if it works, and it, and it seemed to work fine. So we let a wide age range of kids come. Um, it runs six hours long, so it's a big day. We run it monthly uh, at Boston Children's, and some other sites that are running it run it a little bit less frequently. Um, there is a parent group and an adolescent group. They are separate all day long, except for a, sort of a five minute introduction and a five minute closing. Um, so it's like six hours of parent training. Uh, and I really think that this is part of the um, success of this program, that parents are able to be deeply engaged with this. Um, and what it really consists of is a lot of psychoeducation, or in pain uh, context, we call it neuroscience education, really sort of explaining the process of how pain is processed in the brain and why that matters in terms of how we use our psychological strategies to treat it. Um, and then there's a peer support component, um, which is very important as well. Not only are the kids uh, in a group together. We run it with about 10 to 12 families at a time. Not only are they together uh, learning these skills and strategies, but we also have a peer support, a mentor component, 
where we invite a team who's learned how to do better managing their pain to come back and talk to their kids and share their experience. And similarly, um, a parent comes to talk to the parent group. Um, we teach a lot of skills and then importantly, provide them with a lot of resource as well. Um, I'm gonna sidestep here for just one second. I wanna sort of highlight some other things that we're targeting uh, specifically in terms of the context of the program. So what you're looking at are pain scores uh, at discharge, or, or pain scores through the admission process of our rehab program. So again, this is our intensive day treatment program. And there are basically three trajectories, uh, and we, we sort of think of them as our uh, responder group, uh, non our, yes, our responder group uh, is the green line. That's about a third of our sample. These kids come in with moderate pain. It drops down at discharge, but then at the one month follow-up, it's quite low between zero and one and is maintained throughout. About a third of our sample too are sort of these partial responders. Their pain drops down, but then sort of levels off at the one month uh, around a three or four in terms of their perceived pain score. And at one year follow-up, they still have pain. And then this is sort of our non-responder group. These kids come in with high pain and they leave with high pain. So let me just say too that the um, functional, when we look at their function, all of these kids have improved functionally, but we're interested in their sort of subjective uh, response to pain uh, and what that might mean. And if I'm looking at sort of what characterizes <coughs> our, our responder group, um, they're younger. So maybe a little bit more flexible in terms of their approach. Uh, to this, they typically had pain for a little bit less time than our older adolescents. Uh, and they also have lower anxiety and lower depression at the time they're admitted to the program. In contrast, our non-responder group has higher disability uh, and poor school function. So they're different at baseline. Coming into the program, we know that there are some predictive things that are different. Um, oh, and importantly, lower parent readiness to change as well. So parents aren't fully buying in to the idea that this pain can be managed through physical therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. But what I was really interested in was sort of this one month follow-up point here, because after this point, really there's not much change that happens. Um, so they've been discharged to the, from the program, they've had a month to reintegrate back into their lives, and then they sort of plateau at that point. And I wanted to know, what predicts that? What's different at this time point for these kids? And what we found is that this group is differentiated by protective parenting practices, child pain catastrophizing still, and lower child readiness to change. And some of these things are very treatable with some direct intervention. And so that also sort of informed the content of what we were trying to do with this program. I know you can't read this. If you have the handout though, I thought it might be, it might be nice to sort of see how the day unfolds. So you could have it in your record. Um, but, but it's a very structured day. I just wanted to sort of illustrate that for you. Um, we work on sort of uh, motivational interviewing to increase child readiness to change. We work on a lot of neuroscience education so kids themselves can understand this in a developmentally congruent context so they understand what's going on in their body. Um, we teach them, we have yoga mats, they lay down on the floor, they learn diaphragmatic breathing, guided imagery, they get to practice biofeedback, they do an art activity, they talk about mood boosting strategies, we introduce concepts of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, it's a busy day for the kids, it goes very quickly and it's very hands-on experiential. 
At the end of the day, they do an uh, individualized coping plan that they work on one-on-one -on -one with one of the providers that's leading the group. So not only do they have the group experience, but they also get to sort of uh, pull their preferred strategies together in an individual plan at the end of the day. And then our parent program is similarly structured. Um, we do a lot of neuroscience education with parents. Uh, we teach them a lot of sort of what we think about the difference between first-line parenting, like how you might respond to your child if they had a sprained ankle, by doting on them or bringing them special treats or doing their chores, and why that's quite counterproductive in the case of chronic pain. So we do a lot of education with parents around that. We give them tools and techniques for how they can respond to their child's symptoms so that they know not only what they shouldn't do, but what they should do. Um, parents learn breathing strategies. They practice a mindfulness activity because we want parents to understand and really have a taste of what it's like to do these skills. And then they learn about what their kids are learning so that they can reinforce that. Um, in terms of the program strength, um, once we get kids to this program, we know they're gonna get the full dose as opposed to doing a program over six weeks where kids or parents might come for one or two sessions. Uh, anyone that's run group programs like that understands my frustration. Um, that it's very hard to get uh, everybody there for all of the sessions. So once we get kids here, it's pretty hard to lose them occasionally. Somebody leaves at the lunch break, but not often. Um, it serves a wide range of presenting issues. It's quite efficient in that way uh, because of the group model. Pa patients and parents love it. They really appreciate the chance to um, have this condensed format. Um, it's non-stigmatizing. We're hoping that this serves as a primary prevention. So ideally, sort of my fantasy is that we won't get these kids referred all the time that have had pain for a year, but at the point at which their pain becomes disabling or is interfering with sleep or is interfering with school function, early, early, if we can get them in, my hope is that we can start to change that trajectory. And it's a fully manualized program. Um, of course, there are some significant limitations, right? This is definitely a program that targets breadth, not depth. And so we just get to introduce all of these things. We don't get to dive into them more deeply. But our hope is that if we introduce them and they need more, they will then, uh, because they don't feel stigmatized by it and they are engaged with the idea that they'll be more, more uh, willing to provide, uh, to seek uh, providers for ongoing care. Um, definitely it's not comprehensive enough for more entrenched difficulties. Um, I don't think we could ever say that a one-day program would fix some of our complex patients, uh, but it's a, it's a foot in the door. Um, and of course, we don't have any structured follow-up right now. The cost-benefit is also something that we're working on from a limitations perspective. Um, right now, many of the institutions that are running this program have patients pay out of pocket. Uh, it doesn't go through insurance companies. It could, um, but the reimbursement rates are pretty low. Um, and we think that it's not a very expensive program to run, but it does take some institutional backing to keep that going. And I think in order to continue to offer these services, we have to be really mindful of sort of the business end of things. Here's what, rather than going through all of the modules of what the kids are doing, these are sort of our summary concepts. This is what we hope kids and parents leave thinking about. Uh, first of all, pain is a sensory experience that's designed to protect us. It's influenced by our memory, fear, past experiences, mood, attention, and development. We want them to really understand that all of these things necessarily influence how much a child experiences uh, pain. 
uh, it's made pain is made worse when your brain thinks you're at risk for danger and the reverse of that which is to say that pain is better when your brain thinks you're safe and can cope with your symptoms we also want them to walk away feeling like psychology can be really helpful from a cognitive perspective, from a biobehavioral perspective, um, and that kids can build self-efficacy, that they can learn that this is a manageable problem. Um, also, that just because psychology works for treating pain, no way implies that pain is merely a psychological problem. And that is a really important thing. And I tell the parents that I meet with, I'm like, if I have sufficiently brainwashed you, you will really understand what we're talking about when we say that. Um, a focus on function first. So patient, you know, often parents come to us and they don't want to ask their child to go to school because their child hurts. Um, but we talk about sort of rethinking that notion and getting kids back to function first, which is really what we see in the research, that kids can do more before they feel better and that doing more is part of how we get them to feel better. Uh, and lastly, of course, that a team approach to care is needed, that this isn't an only treatment, it's an integrated treatment, and that treating complex chronic pain problems requires often some physical therapy input and physician input too, of course. I'm gonna play for you two quick clips of just patient experience engaging with the program. So the first clip is a 17-year-old named Lily, um, just by way of history. Um, at the time she came here, she was uh, nine months with post-concussive pain, she'd had three concussions, and then was also having these sort of secondary pain problems, neck pain, back pain. She'd been out of school for six months. Uh, she'd been a soccer star, not doing that, of course, and she was depressed. And she and her mom came to the program really when they were, I would say, in like a pre-contemplative state. They were, they sort of came out of due diligence. They were referred to come, they showed up, but they weren't really buying in, and in fact, this was a family that had sought medical care uh, at multiple institutions looking for treatment for the daughter. And so, oops, let's see, the, um, we asked her sort of, what did you get from the program was the question. Oops, I don't know how to play it. There we go. A couple of things, I'd say the first thing is being able to see other kids going through it, just because as I said, it is isolating and a lot of people can't relate, especially with pain for me, you can't see my pain. And you know, people say, it's not cancer, you're fine, but you can't see it and so you don't know. And so being able to have other people who are experiencing, not maybe exactly the same thing, but we're experiencing chronic pain, who are emotionally or physically having some sort of the same things going on as you, was really helpful, inspiring, didn't make you feel alone. Um, so that part, that group part of it, um, and that little social part of it was really helpful. But then also the tips and techniques I got, that's actually where I got the idea of my toolbox, uh, where I figured out what things I needed in my toolbox to have, for example, water, earplugs, um, support for my neck, massage things to hold my fingers, uh, and learn my breathing techniques. So kind of putting together a toolbox so that when I'm in an acute state, I was able to calm myself down. Or that when I'm out in public and my pain increases, I either have an exit strategy or a way to control it. But really being able to be heard uh, by others and being understood was a huge part of it for me. And then I'll show you one parent perspective as well. So. Um, 
this, uh, this is not the father to the child you just saw, um, but his daughter had had functional abdominal pain for two years, um, was a very smart kid, very bright, but not doing well in school, had headache, anxiety, uh, poor sleep. And I will tell you this, this uh, parent um, is a uh, big fan of the program. And when he came to it, I remember, very, I remember him very clearly because at the end of the program, he came up to me and he shook my hand. He said, thank you, Dr. Coakley, that was very helpful. Um, also, I just wanted to introduce myself because we will be coming back in a couple months as your guest speaker. Like, we're gonna go out and do all of this, and I just want you to remember my face because I'm coming back. Um, and I said, super, that sounds wonderful. And he did, uh, which was even better. Um, so here's his perspective. Great benefits to attending a comfortability workshop um, as a parent as well as, I, I think, for the kids. I think the first thing is within the first few minutes, you actually look around and realize you're not going through this alone that all of the parents in the room and all of the kids in the room are dealing with the same thing you're dealing with. And I think that's a huge relief. And I think having been both the person sitting on that side and had the opportunity to speak to the parents when we were towards the end of the recovery, um, it's just so beneficial to have somebody who's there, who can talk about what's going on, who can be open and honest, and to give you the idea that there are many paths to success um, that whatever the new normal the child is going to have, that it's very likely going to be a really good place that that child is going to end up at. So, so first of all, we had to practically drag our daughter kicking and screaming to the comfortability. And I think she, she canceled twice on us. She kept saying, well, I, I have to do this or I have to do that. And so it was a, it was a major victory to get her to walk through the door. Um, and once we did get her through the door, I think seeing all the other people and, and realizing that many of the kids that were there were high achievers and that they were dealing with some of the same unique challenges that we found she was dealing with um, and realizing that there are so many good resources available and that this program coordinates all the various different routines and resources and doctors and, and, and it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal help. Yeah, I, I recognize that it looks that I just like dubbed over him and like made him say those lovely things, but really that was, um, I don't know why that wasn't lined up, but okay, I'm being mindful of the time. We only have a few minutes and I know you probably all have places you need to be. So I'm gonna um, just put up a couple more slides and then I'll pause for a couple questions. Um, this is just a snapshot of who comes to our program when we look at sort of what kind of pain issues uh, we're, we're treating. Um, this is sort of the outcomes from the research end of things. Um, what we found, um, patients like it. We really have made a significant decrease in sort of overprotective parenting, pain catastrophizing, and importantly, this, this construct of self-efficacy improves. Um, some preliminary data on reduced healthcare utilization, but we have to explore that a little more quickly. And the improvements were at one week and one month uh, for the parent group. Um, and adolescents too, they have improved pain self-efficacy, reduced catastrophizing, improved function, reduced pain, and those were evident too at one and three months. I wanna be clear though that we folded this into standard care, um, and so it's hard to know. Um, I think the best evidence for the effectiveness of the program comes from what we see uh, in, for example, this slide, where pre from pre-treatment to one week post-treatment, both mothers and fathers have changed. Um, this is sort of the ARCS, the adult response to child <coughs> symptoms. So they're changing how they respond to their child's symptoms almost immediately. And it's hard to think of what else could account for that within that very short period of time. 
Interestingly, mothers and fathers don't think about these constructs the same, and that's something else that we're exploring, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Um, here's my hypothesis, what we're trying to solve now. What is the specific impact? If you refer a patient to this program, what might you expect? Um, my hypothesis, this is what I think. I think there's a combination of sort of some engaging neuroscience education combined with professional and peer support. Both of those are needed. Not one or the other can work. And then engagement with tools and skills and resources. And I think that combination leads to a time for change. And what that looks like at the individual level may vary. Some kids we know have taken the skills and strategies, they, they end up with workbooks uh, at the end of the program, and they've run with it and they've done quite nicely with it. Other kids then say, well, you know, I didn't really understand how psychology would be helpful, but now that I've explored it a little bit, I'm willing and, and let's engage in that. Or parents then prioritize that as a particular outcome. Or maybe now when they go into an intensive rehab program, if that's where they're headed, if their disability is significant, they've got more readiness uh, and more alertness in terms of how to orient these skills and strategies. Um, the program has grown quite a lot at Boston Children's. It's now disseminated uh, here at Connecticut Children's as well as these other sites in the US and Canada. We have a few more sites that will be signing on within, a few, within the next few months, including our first site in New Zealand, which I'm very happy about. Um, we've got a website resource that has a lot of, this was a, a funded project to provide additional resource uh, for the program, and so we do online team health chats and we have sort of an ask the expert feature, but we also have uh, video exercises for the kids to do and downloadable PDFs. We did a soft launch of the website in April, um, so it's up and it's quite functional. There's more content that's being added um, and we're hoping that's gonna be done by January. So we'll do a sort of a big launch at that time. Um, these were sort of being filmed. We are everywhere in social media, and as I have learned, um, you need Twitter to engage your professional colleagues, and Instagram to get to the adolescents, and Facebook to get to the parents. So you have to, if you're gonna, if you're gonna like go out there and do it, you gotta go big. So we're everywhere. Um, and then as sort of an offshoot of this, um, we have developed, or I've developed this um, sickle cell program, uh, which which takes the same skills and 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 basic education and thinks about sort of some of the specific needs in our sickle cell population um, because they do have different acts, they have different barriers that are getting in the way of their care. And so we came up with a program uh, that is YouTube video based um, using many of these same sorts of skills and strategies in a workbook as well. Um, in terms of our next steps, um, we have a multi-site study that's gonna be starting up soon so we can really answer some of those questions about what is the specific impact um, additional website resources, and we're starting to think too about booster modules. We've had a lot of requests from patients and providers. Um, can you give us more on sleep or activity avoidance or relaxation or school planning? Um, and so at this point, we're starting to sort of work on some of those um, and uh, think about how we might do them, whether they're gonna be webinar-based, for example, or be rolled out at each individual site that's running the net, you know, our network of sites, we're not sure. Um, thinking about a sibling session too, we've had a lot of requests around that. Um, and we're building these formalized executive and advisory councils as well to help inform um, our trajectory over the next few years. So real quickly, summary, um, we need to get these skills and strategies on board much earlier than we're doing. So if you are in various departments and can think about when kids might benefit from this and importantly, when parents might need this, this education and this opportunity to connect and feel supported around this. Um, we should be referring them much more early. Um, 
a program like this, I think, offers a really nice foot in the door, sort of first-line intervention um, that is appealing to kids and to parents because there's no stigma associated with it. And even though it's really all psychology-based, um, we don't talk a lot about the psychological comorbidities uh, with pain specifically. We talk really about psychology as it relates to pain management. Um, and we have to remember the parents are struggling at least as much, if not more, than the adolescents. And so we really have to target them as well. Um, many, many small grants and uh, endowments have been supporting my work. So I just wanted to give a shout out uh, for all of that as well. And I'll wrap now so maybe we can do a question. So. <laughs>